Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. You're listening to Moe Zafsau, Chief Investment Officer for EFG. On the podcast today, we are doing a special 2021 mid-year review. We have our illustrious macro team uh, on the uh, on the podcast today. So uh, we have uh, Daniel Murray, Joaquin Tools, Stefan Gerlach and Gianluigi Mandrazato. We'll go through the, the macro outlook. It'll be a slightly different version from the uh, version that you would have seen at some of our webinars. We'll, we'll try and make it a little bit more digestible uh, in uh, in audio format. Uh, so we'll uh, kind of kick off with it. Um, for those of you who, who haven't um, listened in or, or read our reviews or, uh, or even our 2021 outlooks, what we tend to do at mid, mid-year level is uh, go back to some of our predictions from early in the year and really recount them. You know, we made lots of assumptions about the global economy, about sectors and markets um, uh, as we look forward through the full year of, of 2021. And um, and then at the mid-year level and then through the year, we actually go back and say, well, what did we say at the beginning of the year? And this anchoring is, is I think, quite unique to us because many um, investment analysts and strategists sometimes forget where they started from. The danger always is that, is that you move with the current rhythm of the markets or you move with the current economic data uh, or even the themes that are going on at that point and sometimes you lose your reference point. So we always like to go back and and go back to our reference point th- at the beginning of the year and say, well, what assumptions did we make? Were we right? right? Were we wrong? And, and if we have to pivot... Uh, we've got a reference to pivot from. So that's always the reason why we do these mid-year reviews and, and also uh, important the, the, the context. Um, so maybe sort of quick thoughts about the markets um, so far this year. They've generally been um, pretty good. Uh, MSL World in, in local uh, terms is up around 11%. Um, and we uh, generally, as we go into the third quarter, third quarter I think most investors who are invested are uh, probably reasonably happy with the returns that they've achieved. Um, so um, probably the big surprise, I would say, over the last few weeks has been the, the rally in Treasury bonds uh, and, the, and, if you like, uh, moving away from peak p- inflation pessimism, which is probably around March time. But since then, we've seen fixed income markets actually being quite well behaved um, and we haven't seen the kind of runaway uh, bond yields uh, that uh, everybody thought might happen uh, just a few weeks ago. doesn't mean that it won't happen, but certainly one of the things we'll touch upon in our discussions uh, with the team. So overall, uh, markets have been well set. Risk markets have performed much better than the, the more riskless markets. Pretty in general, I think, positive fundamentals across currencies uh, as well as uh, the commodity markets. The first question's... Uh, thinking about the markets, the big question to us is around uh, COVID. So we've been worried about COVID. We've been talking about COVID every week in, in our Macro Mondays and, and, and in our calls uh, with clients, really looking at you know uh, whether there are going to be new lockdowns or not. I think where we're moving towards now is much more of a focus on the different variants and indeed whether the variants... Uh, and the vaccines are are actually are able to tackle the new variants as they come along. So maybe Joaquin, just a maybe first question to you is: tell us about the different variants and the variants of interest, and what are we seeing in terms of vaccines being able to be effective against those variants? 
Yeah, you're, you're right. I think uh, for, for those that have followed what we have been saying about uh, the virus, we are moving away from the whole understanding of how, how COVID works and how it gets spread to another um, another phase where we are actually thinking about the new variants and how um, the vaccines are going to work against uh, these this different variants. And um, and you're right, um, the, the WHO has identified multiple um, variants uh, of, uh, of COVID-19. Uh, there are some, uh, there are four of them, which are variants of concern, uh, which are the alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. So the, the variants have appeared um, across different uh, regions in the UK, in South Africa, in Brazil, and, and in India. And then some, there's multiple other variants which are just variants of interest so far, which haven't become as problematic as, as the southern two, uh, the southern four, which have um, actually uh, spread quite quite fast. The good news about this is that um, the, the vaccines that have been approved so far, or at least the most popular vaccines uh, from, uh, from Pfizer and BioNTech, from Moderna, from AstraZeneca and um, Oxford University, um, from Johnson & Johnson, and some of the Chinese ones as well, uh, have proved to be quite effective against uh, uh, the more severe symptoms of, of the virus. So having a complete regimen of the, of the vaccine, so that, that means having two doses of the vaccine in those that are required two doses, and um, spending uh, another 14 days after that, that second dose give you a, a very good protection against uh, um, hospitalization, so actually the, the, the patient the developing severe symptoms. Uh, and this protection is, is pretty much almost very close to 100% or uh, around, um, around 90% in, in, in some cases. So it's actually pretty good uh, when we compare this with, uh, with other vaccines. Uh, and this reinforces also the, the argument of how important it is to vaccinate uh, the population in order for economies to be able to reopen uh, and for the recovery that we've been speaking so much over these months to actually um, uh, start and gain some momentum. Absolutely key. I think, um, you know, watching that and the variants going forward is going to give us the outlook that we're looking for, or at least corroborate the outlook that we're looking for in terms of positive economic growth and no future shocks down further down the line. So Daniel, um, on the uh, economic growth front, at the beginning of the year, we were pretty confident that we'd have this sort of synchronised global economic recovery. Uh, What are your thoughts around that? I think if anything, it's the outlook's got even better um, so far this year. I think we've still got the strong tailwind of policy, both on the fiscal and monetary side of things. Economies are starting to open up. Um, and of course, with uh, increased vaccination rates around the world and growing confidence in the efficacy of the vaccine, then uh, so uh, people are becoming more confident. So actually, we've seen recently growth uh, expectations revise up quite sharply for this year. The OECD, for example, beginning of the year, it thought 2021 was going to see global growth uh, of around uh, about 4%. Now thinks global growth is going to be um, uh, closer to 6% for this year. And uh, uh, it's interesting to note that uh, of the individual country forecasts, uh, expectations for the US and the UK are particularly strong, both expected to grow by about 7% this year. And um, of course, those are two countries that have got really quite well advanced vaccination programs. But actually, the benefits we felt all around the world is people and goods start moving um, around again, and as uh, the situation starts to return to normal. So overall, I think still a, a pretty good, um, uh, if not an even better macro outlook for this year. And in terms of economic growth, previous podcasts we've discussed, you know, step one and step two, step one being getting back to 
uh, pre-pandemic growth levels and then step two being above trend growth rate levels pre-pandemic. What are your thoughts about that and uh, and obviously how that dovetails into employment in around the world? Yeah, I think policymakers are probably looking at these two indicators as very crude sort of rules of thumb in regard to um, how successful policies have been in terms of uh, supporting recovery and, and how successful economies have been that they're actually uh, attaining previous highs. So um, for most economies around the world, they're expected to um, reach their previous peaks in activity sometime later this year or maybe um, the first half of next year. Um, and uh, But they probably won't surpass their pre-COVID trends in activity for uh, another few years yet. So there's still a way to go, really, to close the gap between output and potential output. There are a couple of exceptions. China obviously had a, uh, a reasonably benign crisis. Activity did dip, but by less than in uh, many other parts of the world and recovered very quickly. So China uh, has already surpassed its previous peak in activity and is very rapidly approaching its pre-COVID trend. And the US has also had a pretty good experience. So sharp contraction last year, but again, a strong rebound. It looks to us like the US is currently at or around its pre-COVID peak in terms of activity and that it will surpass its pre-COVID trend line uh, later this year or the early part of next year. So US is doing pretty well. But overall, you know, most economies around the world, I think, if you've been offered this situation uh, uh, when the crisis first hit, I think uh, most people around the world will be pretty happy with where we are today. And obviously, employment is a bit of a lagging indicator. So, so when do you think employment, say, in the US will get back to pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, this is a very different story. So um, uh, we know that the impact of COVID has been felt uh, unequally across the economy. And in particular, it's impacted lower paid workers. And um, those um, jobs are much more flexible, much easy, much more easy for uh, employers to get rid of and to rehire. And uh, so it's perhaps not surprising that in the US, whilst activity is back to pre-COVID levels, employment is quite a long way short. So there's roughly sort of seven and a half million fewer people employed today than there were at the previous peak. And it looks actually like it's going to take some time before um, uh, numbers get back to normal. And I think the main implication of that is that um, it's going to give policymakers a lot of freedom to withdraw stimulus at a, a pretty slow pace. Um, I think, of course, in other countries where the rebound has been a bit slower than the US, um, those employment metrics will probably take even longer before they uh, recover completely. Thanks. So thanks, Daniel. So let's move on to uh, Europe and obviously European economies, maybe slightly behind the rest of the, the world or certainly behind US and UK. Uh, given uh, second and, and even third outbreaks uh, d- during Europe and, and the lockdowns that maybe a little bit more extended. Uh, Gianluigi, th- uh, thoughts on uh, European economic growth and um, and indeed whether we will um, see, you know, stimulus staying strong for the foreseeable future? Yes, indeed. Uh, European growth has been lagging for a large part of this uh, pandemic uh, period, but uh, recently he has uh, caught up, and uh, indeed uh, that was, of course, consequence of the easing of restrictions, and was mainly reflected in a in a surge in services activity, which is of course the backbone of the European economy. Uh, of course, going forward, um, the, the 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 big question mark is how stimulative will uh, policy remain, not just monetary but also fiscal policy, and if if anything, 
it is uh, comforting that um, recently the European Commission said that also for next year, 2022, the, uh, the European Stability and Growth Pact will be suspended, which means that uh, governments will be allowed to borrow as much as needed to uh, you know, support growth. And also, uh, given that um, most uh, national recovery and resilience uh, plans have been approved, you would expect that the second half of this year we'll see finally the uh, you know, distribution of the first uh, installments of the funds from the European Commission and the first uh, investments being, um, uh, being uh, you know, implemented by, by local governments. And that, of course, will be uh, giving a thrust to to uh, the European economy. At the same time, the ECB once again confirmed that uh, despite the improvement in the outlook, uh, despite the improvement uh, also on the inflation front to some extent, I think that uh, a large degree of accommodation is needed. And so purchases on the PEP will remain uh, high also during the summer. And so for the next, uh, say, three to six months, at least, uh, uh, policy will definitely remain a headwind for the Eurozone economy. Absolutely. So, um, Sorry, a, a, a tailwind. I was so. going to say a tailwind, <laughs> yeah. A, a tailwind for the economy, absolutely. I think, um, and, and certainly where we've seen that impact in, in the US um, and, and in the UK, um, you know, Europe uh, in some respects has been a bit delayed as they uh, went through um, all the various different parliaments to get things ratified in terms of spending. And uh, as I said, uh, there is a delayed impact here. And so we may see stronger growth in Europe later than than earlier uh, compared to other countries. Uh, so I think that um, is certainly something that is uh, you know, particularly interesting. Moving on to uh, January, on, 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 on to Switzerland. Um, obviously, we've seen this recovery in uh, in economic growth uh, in March. What are the other sort of key things that are going on uh, in Switzerland, particularly around uh, fiscal policy? The focus of, of public debate in Switzerland, I think, is moving a bit away from the standard issues of monetary policy, growth, uh, and inflation, because these are, uh, particularly monetary policies, are kind of on autopilot for, for the next uh, uh, few quarters, at least. Uh, this is uh, At least this is the message that... Uh, the SMB sent after its last uh, board meeting. Now, at the same time, the, the debate is a bit uh, heating up on, on fiscal policy uh, because, uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, the, the Federal Council uh, uh, submitted a proposal to reform the public pension system, which has now been approved by the parliament, but is likely to be not accepted by the population when put to a referendum. Uh, but this is uh, a bit unfortunate uh, to some extent because uh, it's curious to know that uh, retirement age in Switzerland is uh, uh, stuck at 65 years of age since 1948 when the public pension system was uh, actually uh, launched. And and that happened against, uh, as we know, a a surge in longevity. And uh, in fact, given the same, say, environment, other countries developed countries, European countries, including Germany, Italy, France, UK, they all went through uh, structural reforms that eventually raised pension age, whose effects are not fully uh, yet in place, but will uh, increase over the next um, uh, decade or so, uh, retirement age by uh, another one or two years in, in most countries. And that, of course, is has been uh, done to fight uh, the uh, otherwise adverse uh, effects of, of uh, uh, of population aging on the financial balances of of uh, fiscal pension system, public pension system, and eventually uh, public accounts. 
I suspect everyone's waiting for the release of um, the SMB's windfall gains as part of their policy. Um, or as one might say, um, have a, a major hedge fund that will uh, be a benefactor to them. <laughs> yeah, although, um, I mean, the SMB distributes uh, money to the, to the public sector on, uh, on, on actually the new deal that was struck at the beginning of this year uh, makes room for up to six billion Swiss francs being distributed uh, according to the size of the annual uh, profits of the of the central bank, and then the, the government and the cantons can uh, dispose of this money as as they wish, and they can allocate that to you know uh, tackle uh, loopholes or, or, or financing gaps in, in the pension system already. Uh, instead, it looks like uh, politics also in Switzerland. Uh, uh, you know, uh, tries to find uh, an easy way out uh, and and uh, getting resources uh, here and there, but that would be blurring the the, the you know the, the the border between fiscal and monetary policy, and that would not be good for for SMB independence and for the overall credibility of uh, of uh, Swiss politics. Very very uh, important topic. Um, I suspect we're never going to solve here. Uh, so let's let's um, pivot to Latin America. Uh, Joaquin, in terms of what we're seeing there, obviously there's been a big shift to the left in Latin America um, recently. Uh, what are the implications of that, and uh, what are we seeing in terms of economic growth trends in the region? Yeah, if if anything, rather than saying there's been a shift to the left, I'll say there's been a shift in politics because, for example, in the case of Ecuador, the um, uh, the new president is uh, is a more conservative uh, candidate. The one in Peru is quite um, uh, left wing, uh, and and there's there's a lot of change, let's say, going on in in politics because of COVID. So the the repercussions of um, uh, of the of the crisis ended up generating, as as in most uh, countries in the world, uh, very low low growth levels, high uh, indebtedness in some of these countries, high unemployment, wider fiscal deficits, um, and in some cases uh, rising inflation. We've seen the case in Mexico. We've seen this as well. In, in Brazil um, and as well uh, in, in Chile. Um, however, um, this has, has not been the case in, 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 every, in every country. They're, they're, all, they're all coming with different contexts, with different um, uh, fundamentals uh, before. And I think the, the rise in, in commodity prices will definitely help this year to give some of these exporting countries a boost um, to, to their growth levels to try to recover and, and bring them back to that step one that you were mentioning um, earlier, uh, but it might not be might not be enough. Uh, in the case of Peru and Chile, the boost of industrial metals, particularly copper, will be very important. Um, the, the rise in the price of oil will be very good for for Colombia as well. But all of these countries are currently um, fighting this scar that COVID is going to leave in, in terms of uh, governments. We've seen the social protests in in Colombia. We've seen the new government in Ecuador, just was saying, and, and the one that uh, is still yet to be announced in Peru. Um, a change in the in the Congress uh, setting, let's say, for, for Mexico, giving López Obrador less of a maneuver uh, for, for implementing his reform plan. Um, there's going to be some midterm elections in Argentina, and there's a lot of noise in Chile regarding the new constitution that's going to be voted later this year. So there's a lot of noise happening around politics that has been maybe fueled by the, the, the COVID crisis. Um, and I think governments are going to need to balance these short-term needs and these social protests 
um, um, given this, this high increase in, in unemployment, for example, uh, with the longer term sustainability of, uh, of the, their economic plan. So definitely, I think if there's one word that can summarize the outlook for this year in Latin America, it's uncertainty and also um, the, the need to be selective um, in, in our exposure to, to the region. Absolutely. I think uh, it's a topic we'll come back to a bit later on. Uh, so um, what can change all of this is obviously the Federal Reserve um, in terms of their policy and so the policy they have. So uh, uh, Stefan, uh, bringing you uh, onto the scene um, very quickly. So um, thoughts about, we discussed this as the Fed's dilemma uh, in terms of the um, kind of growth and then the inflation outlook. Let's let's tackle the growth bit first, and then I think the the, the important one that obviously we get a lot of questions about uh, is inflation. Yes, yeah, so I think the uh, the Fed is obviously very pleased that the U.S. economy is growing so strongly this year, but it does see this growth rate as being temporary. It has uh, ratcheted up its forecast uh, or its projection, or the FOMC members themselves sort of ratcheted up their. Uh, uh, projections for real GDP growth this year to 7%. But so perhaps a little surprisingly, they have not changed their forecasts for 2022 and 2023. So they see this strong boost in the economy as as being a temporary, more temporary, more short-lived actually than I think most outside commentators. Um, and similarly, um, they see the rise in inflation also as being temporary. And in terms of inflation, um, you know, what are your thoughts? Obviously, base effects uh, are uh, certainly having a, a very large impact in terms of those inflation numbers. And obviously, our view is that inflation uh, numbers will start to come down given that base effect. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? And when do we start to worry about, you know, more permanent inflation problem? So um, the base effects have been quite large. I mean, have been pushing up inflation in recent months, and that is now about uh, to turn. And in I think uh, for June, July, and August, the base effects will go in the other direction. We will, will be quite large, in fact. Uh, so I think if we don't see inflation turning uh, in the certainly by the, by the July data that come out in in August, we should start. Uh, we should start. Uh, uh, wondering. Um, it is clear that the incoming data has been surprisingly strong. So uh, we've had this base effect that has tended to push up inflation as the lower, even negative inflation rates from last spring are falling out of the calculations. But it's also true that the incoming data has been has been surprisingly strong. One component there are used cars and used trucks. But even if you take that out, the effect has been the, uh, the incoming data has been surprisingly strong. The Fed is saying that this is due to the reopening of the economy, and that sounds very plausible. But as you suggest, if it continues for a while, that uh, that explanation will start to lack uh, credibility. In terms of the um, inflation in the U.S. relative to the other, uh, you know, eurozone or the U.K., what is the what are those comparisons on inflation telling us? So, uh, because of this base effect, because of the fact that Inflation was negative in, in most countries or in many countries last spring. We had ex expected inflation to rise in just about all economies. In the U.S., it's rising more strongly than anticipated. And that's also true for a number of Latin American economies, for instance, Mexico and, and Brazil in particular. Um, but in the rest of the world, 
that's not really the case. It looks like certainly in Europe, in the UK, in the euro area, in Switzerland, it looks like inflation is rising uh, pretty much as one would have anticipated given these base effects. Uh, and that's true for a number of other countries uh, as well. It's not true um, for Russia, for instance. Uh, so there are a few other countries that have seen unexpectedly strong rises in inflation. But generally, the US phenomenon is 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 quite specific to the to the western hemisphere in fact I, I i should say so we don't seem to have a sort of a generalized surge in inflation uh we have a generalized recovery in inflation but no sort of um, surge explosion if you like and in terms of the fed you know positioning itself going forward obviously there's been you know talk um certainly the last uh, fomc sort of press conference there was uh, Bullard and there's various other Fed um, um, officials talking about taper, not taper, when rates go up, don't go up. Some are quite confused messaging. Um, what's, your, what's your take on what you've seen so far? Well, it's quite common, actually, uh, for the Fed uh, that the messaging ends up being uh, a, little, a, little, uh, a little all over the place, if you like, because different members are, are, are some feel quite hesitant to say a lot and others like uh, like Bullard uh, who is an ex-academic is very happy to talk um, so I think by and large um, it, the Fed has clearly been surprised a little surprised by the strengthening of the economy this uh, this year as uh, as Daniel said in the beginning uh, and this is this is gradually impacting on the sentiment in the in the FOMC for instance uh, in these dot plots that one should not overestimate the importance of, but in these dot plots, uh, for instance, in December, no one saw a, a need to raise interest rates in, in 2021, 22, or 2023. By now, there are uh, several, there actually the, the uh, median view is that the Fed will raise interest rates twice in 2023 um but not before that but in fact if just two members of the fomc were to change their views you could you could have a, a uh, an interest rate increase sort of priced in already in 2022 um, so uh, you know it's sort of, of static uh, and it depends very much on what happens to the economy in, uh, in the rest of this year for instance if inflation does not come come down or if the growth rate con- continues to stay very, very high, or even rises, one can well imagine a situation where the Fed will say, well, we have probably underestimated the strength of the recovery, and we need to take some action now to make sure that sort of market uh, expectations of inflation, etc., just don't go, um, go haywire. Um, so um, it could happen. It could happen. But for the moment, I think our view is that uh, um, the Fed will, will probably announce, for instance, a tapering, sometime in the fall and that will impact on market sentiment and they will send signals saying that uh, probably will start taper next year and you will see probably dot plots moving up suggesting that the fed may may raise rates already in 2022 um, but it's all it's all it's all data dependent indeed very interesting so we've had the unemployment data so two non-farm payrolls in a row have been certainly on the weaker side relative to expectations i guess sentiment could shift very quickly on the one non-farm payroll number uh, so certainly we need to be um, vigilant uh, to that as certainly as we move into into july moving on now looking at some of the sectors and themes uh, that we sort of outlined uh, at the beginning 
uh, of the year. Uh, the first theme was this idea of big government stays big, and certainly they've remained very big. If, if anything, now have got bigger than they were before. Uh, Daniel, any thoughts in terms of how that's um, playing out? And in, in fact, what are the mitigations that are now being applied uh, by governments? Yeah, I think, you know, government's quite rightly cautious about withdrawing stimulus too quickly, and so I think we'll remain fully supportive um, until the uncertainty is passed. Also notable, of course, that in uh, the US, they're adding more stimulus independently of COVID um, to uh, address things such as the infrastructure shortfall over the past few years and address other um, uh, perceived um, uh, asymmetries in the economy. So lots of stimulus still going on around the world. But I think that as confidence returns, the question is increasingly pointing as to how governments are going to pay for their largesse over the past few years and their uh, likely largesse over the next few years. And um, that, of course, is a political question as much as it is an economic question. It's always a difficult thing to address. People love tax cuts, but they hate tax hikes. Um, and so very difficult to get elected on a platform where um, uh, you're talking about hiking taxes. But one of the taxes that's less controversial is corporation tax. That tends to be less politically sensitive because governments are obviously um, uh, going after companies rather than individuals. So it's less of a vote loser. And so I think it's just really interesting in that context that we saw agreement recently uh, from the G7 on a 15% global minimum corporation tax. And that's, uh, in some respects, that reflects a lot of ongoing work over the previous few years that's been coordinated by the OECD. So I think moves are afoot generally to have greater degree of coordination on, on corporation tax. I think the interesting thing about what's been recently been announced is that in practice, it's not really going to have uh, very sharp teeth. It's not going to be very effective because most countries have uh, corporate tax rates that are far in excess of 15% already. There are a few that don't, but most do. Uh, but I think what's important is that um, it will represent the first stage in a sort of globally consistent tax system, make it much harder for companies to uh, legally avoid tax in the future. And so probably, you know, it's easier to get something implemented when the rate is low and when it doesn't uh, uh, cause much of an impact. But then, you know, you might reasonably expect that to see increase over the coming years once it's been uh, put in place. Yeah, and it's, it's very interesting. It's one of those things that's probably the easiest thing to get done because very few countries actually had it less than 15%. So it was one of those things that was always going to happen, uh, you know, particularly quickly. Um, uh, the other sort of um, theme that's going around uh, tax, and certainly in the United States, maybe less so elsewhere, is this ProPublica leaked documents that came out from, from the wealthy billionaires and their their um uh, their wealth increase over the last four or five years a any thoughts on that yeah so this um is part of an ongoing debate and uh you know reflects the fact that the benefits of the stimulus not just over the past year but of, of um you know of, of quantitative easing over the past 10 or 12 years are perceived to have um been directed disproportionately towards the wealthy and made the wealthy even wealthier whilst um, not benefiting those on lower incomes. Now, there's a debate, it's an open debate as to whether or not that's actually true, but that's the perception. And of course, um, there are fewer wealthier people in the world than there are less wealthy people by definition. And so, again, it's politically less sensitive um, and it's uh, an easier um, thing to target. Uh, in that respect, you know, it is notable, as you sort of alluded to, the fact that it's easier for wealthy people to avoid tax legally 
And so some of the wealthiest people in the world actually pay very little tax. And um, so it seems like a, a natural thing to explore is the practicality of imposing some sort of wealth tax that would, uh, again, seek to help balance the government's coffers a, a, around the world. I mean, you know, in practice, I think there's only four countries in the world at the moment that have a wealth tax, which perhaps tells you something about the challenges of implementing it. But uh, I think nonetheless, it's something that's going to come as a sharper focus over the next few years and be uh, an increasing topic for debate. Certainly closing tax loopholes are definitely going to be one of the one of the big things that are going to be uh, talked about. And certainly in the US, you know, gains around real estate or capital gains around real estate and you know, write-offs and charitable giving and all these sort of things that um, the very wealthy use to ensure that uh, the, the amount of tax they pay is uh, is a lot less than otherwise it would have been. One further point, perhaps, in that regard, and that's with an ageing population, of course, as more people retire, then they might be very wealthy individuals but not, not uh, receiving much of an income. And so that's another reason why wealth taxes are becoming of more interest to the tax authorities. So one of the things we had... Uh, early this year was this global cooperation reinvented and that was around this notion that Biden was going to you know build bridges around the world with 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 uh, with uh, you know Europe and and Asia and and various other places and generally think that's happened uh, we've got a slightly different take on it Daniel yeah so we've combined two of our um, topics from earlier in the year into one and um, so one of our topics was as you said uh, around the idea that um, the world will become um, better coordinated and better connected after the Trump uh, administration. But we also talked at the beginning of the year about um, governments being keener to um, employ policies that are more environmentally friendly. And it's this sort of combination of the environment and global cooperation that really seems to have taken off. And that intersection is uh, really seems to be a, a very vibrant place at the moment. So obviously under the Biden administration, um, they've sought to re-engage with the world on climate change issues and uh, sought to re-engage with the Paris Agreement. Um, we know that the Biden administration is proposing policies that will encourage more environmentally forms, environmentally friendly forms of production and more environmentally friendly forms of, of energy production and usage. And of course, um, in Europe as well, there's um, uh, you know part of the um, recovery. Um, plan is to uh, spend a, a third of the assets on environmentally friendly policies. And then, of course, in the emerging world, there's pretty much greater acknowledgement of the need for growth to be supported by environmentally friendly policies. So uh, increasingly, it looks like um, a channel that's moved from being at the periphery of, uh, of attention right to the centre. And it's something that, you know, if countries around the world can agree on, then it's a, a very fertile area for uh, future cooperation and collaboration. One of the things we talked about at the beginning of the year was was uh, the digital consumer. Uh, and there was this notion that um, uh, due to COVID, uh, you know, consumers generally became much, much more in tune with uh, using you know, their phones uh, to order stuff uh, and use services as well. Uh, and that uh, we sort of further looked at and really looked at it in the lens from a financial consumer perspective. And one of the things that we've um, uh, been looking at is is how successful certain um, uh, apps have been 
Um, and uh, you know, one one example is Venmo, which is uh, an app that is uh, um, that's owned by uh, PayPal. And um, they they've uh, in about eleven years they've managed to get seventy million consumers in the United States, which is which is a great number. Uh, it took, by the way, J.P. Morgan two hundred twenty-two years to get sixty million customers. Just shows you the the um, the rapid pace of adoption that um, some of these um, online or, or phone-based uh, apps uh, have, um, have have taken on, and just quite phenomenal. And I think that certainly will will certainly continue for the foreseeable future. Uh, another area that we've been looking at is obviously climate change. Um, and uh, specifically doing a drill down into the uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, according to to the United Nations, um, you know, food or certainly food production uh, is is estimated to to use about 40% of the land. It actually contributes 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, that's more than electricity and heat production, which obviously gets a lot of the attention, Uh, and about 70% of the fresh water consumption. So food and agriculture is certainly a huge element in fighting greenhouse gases. And uh, and again, it's something that we uh, certainly see as something's going to keep on moving forward for uh, for the very long term. Now... Uh, alongside these uh, greenhouse uh, gas emissions, we're also um, uh, looking at the um, industrial metals and industrial metals with respect to EVs. So I'm just going to ask um, Gianluigi to give us a little bit of take on uh, things like the gold price and indeed uh, some of those metals that we may be a little bit more focused on and uh, an electric vehicle and the greening of the economy. Starting from gold price, uh, it is notable that uh, since the Federal Reserve issued its uh, last statement, it went through a quite a quick and sharp correction, which, uh, according to our models, make it, uh, makes it now uh, quite undervalued against its, uh, its uh, fundamental value, uh, the latter being uh, uh, the result of uh, uh, you know, taking into account the level of yields, uh, the level of the dollar as an index, and uh, market volatility. Uh, our model would suggest that uh, a price closer to, say, $1,950, would be more appropriate and <clears throat> given that it is now worrying about $200 below that that could be uh, uh, you know um, uh, uh, an investment that could be considered not uh, forgetting the, the quality of, of gold as a, as a hedge in a, in a uh, potentially difficult environment if that were to be uh, happening again uh, the story about industrial metals is, uh, is quite different and it is really a, a structural uh, change that is taking place and is possibly only just began, uh, which is uh, linked to the energy transition. According to the International Energy Agency, uh, to meet uh, the goals set by governments of uh, uh, basically um, uh, reducing to zero the emissions of CO2 by the end of 2050, uh, a lot of changes would, would be needed in the way we, we consume uh, and produce energy. And uh, a crucial will have um, mobility, of course, and uh, electric vehicles uh, within that. Uh, And also uh, the production of uh, solar or wind power, 
would be very intensive in uh, in, uh, in in terms of need of copper, aluminium, nickel, and zinc, which are the uh, four main industrial metals. And uh, given that over uh, the decades their prices have been moving almost uh, always in zinc and. The International Energy Agency itself notes that the high degree of substitutability, for instance, between copper and aluminium, uh, while copper remains at the forefront of this uh, transition, it would be not surprising to see that all industrial metals uh, follow a similar pattern over the next decades, because this is indeed a structural shift that will unfold over decades not years not months decades one of the next themes we're looking at is around kind of fixed income and there basically maybe um, a slight pivot here in generally fixed income and certainly risk in within fixed income has performed very well and uh, most notably some of the ones that we were discussing early in the year around convertibles in fact still look reasonably priced and look reasonably attractive um, as well as uh, chinese renminbi uh, also looked um, uh, undervalued uh, and uh, certainly still has a, a yield that's substantially higher than elsewhere. So some of those things we were discussing earlier this year and they still very much hold today. Probably the slight difference relative to the beginning of the year is around uh, thinking about emerging market vulnerabilities. And, and um, one of the thoughts, certainly in our minds, is that during any recessionary period or any crises, as you come out, there are always one or two regions or areas that are struggling with respect to um, uh, you know, keeping up with the economic changes, the maybe political changes that cause issues. And you know, certainly our mind's drawn to the um, uh, European economies of uh, you know, Greece, Portugal, uh, Italy, Spain, etc., that uh, really found it uh, an island which found it very difficult uh, post the global financial crisis. So our, our uh, antennae are basically very well tuned into where the next crisis is going to come from, because typically that's what happens coming out of a of of one crisis is usually another one. Um, and so uh, one way or one lens we've been looking through this is is try to identify where, for example, yields are very low at the moment and don't necessarily price in the risks. Uh, and so we've identified certainly a lot of Latin American uh, countries, the most obvious uh, ones are sort of Argentina, um, Joaquin talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, Peru, uh, Colombia. You know, these are some of the areas that look particularly vulnerable uh, where actually the current yields are very low. So in essence, you're, you're not really being compensated for the additional risks um, that are are probably inherent in those in those economies, and so that's something that uh, uh, we're we're very watchful for, uh, and uh, certainly preferring uh, countries uh, such as uh, Brazil that actually look to be in better shape than they were, for example, uh, in 2013 when we had the taper tantrum, um, and even countries like um, you know Indonesia that are also in that in that group. Uh, as well as India, they're in that group. They're actually in better shape than they were coming out of the f financial crisis. So um, a key message within fixed income is to ensure that you're focused on value for money, given the risks that are out there. And also knowing that, you know, uh, post-financial crisis periods are usually do uh, lead to further crises. So we should not really forget that. 
a couple of other themes which we'll quickly rattle through. Uh, still very much uh, in, uh, th- thinking positively about smaller companies. Uh, they have uh, very handsomely outperformed um, in, with a theme that we called Small is Beautiful at the beginning of the year. In fact, virtually every um, major market has seen smaller companies outperform, which is obviously gratifying to see. Uh, within technology, we remain quite concerned with some of the big cap tech companies. Clearly, the regulator is, is finding uh, reasons, excuses to really sort of turn the screws a bit. We've certainly seen that in, in China, where some of the big cap uh, technology firms have found it uh, have been hit with with fines and and uh, self rectification programs, um, and obviously we're also starting to see that in in Europe uh, with various different actions that are going on there. Uh, and finally, uh, you know, maybe a, a slight warning shot is that um, you know, Biden is um, and, and the administration is certainly refunding some of these um, you know regulated entities to fight um, anti-competitive behaviour. And that's uh, something that uh, is certainly something that we should watch out for when it comes to those big tech companies. Uh, And then finally, um, on healthcare, uh, I say one of the things we've actually got wrong so far in that healthcare has actually been one of the worst performing sectors. We haven't put much wrong so far this year, but certainly healthcare has been um, one of the, the the worst performers on a relative, still positive, but on a relative basis has underperformed. And then certainly our view is that we should be doubling down on this, given that we've hit a period of peak growth where investors have piled into uh, the um, uh, the very cyclical parts of uh, the the markets, such as materials. We talked about energy a little bit earlier, but also industrials. And healthcare kind of looks boring from an earnings growth perspective, but we do think that healthcare and um, uh, and disruption around healthcare is something that is going to be uh, a major theme going forward, particularly as we come out of the uh, crises. Uh, so that wraps up all the themes that we have been uh, talking about through the course of this year. Uh, just a, a quick summary in terms of our asset allocations at the moment. We remain overweight in equities, uh, still feeling positive on a long-term basis. And that doesn't mean that we won't have a 10 or 15% correction in between, but certainly on a three to five year view, we remain pretty constructive. Um, still very much overweight in, in the US, um, and more cautious in, in, in Latin American emerging markets, as we discussed a little bit earlier. In fixed income, remain cautious on the uh, uh, government sovereign side. We're not really being paid very much for that. Um, at the same time, uh, being you know more thoughtful about allocations to uh, convertibles uh, and to um, kind of more hybrid securities and a little bit more cautious to neutral everywhere else. Uh, finally, on uh, currencies, um, we are, um, uh, you know, uh, still slightly more bearish on the dollar. I wouldn't say that we are, you know, banging the table here, but certainly see, a, you know, better performance out the pound. Uh, some of the uh, Asian currencies may be a bit more bearish on on, on the dollar yen uh, as we move forward here. But uh, overall, um, looking for a slightly more weaker dollar. And uh, on the commodity front, um, you know, still positive on certain um, uh, industrial metals that we uh, that uh, Gianluigi talked about a little bit earlier. 
Um, and uh, and even on hedge funds, we are starting to see some value in some of the uh, macro and uh, CTA areas, um, given the adaptability to different market conditions. Uh, so uh, with that, um, gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, uh, for joining me on the podcast. And of course, to all our listeners, we are fully available. If you have any questions or any thoughts, or even if you like to disagree with us, we're very happy to uh, to receive uh, feedback. So, and you can of course send that feedback at our dedicated website, uh, beyond at fgam.com. So, I'll repeat that beyond at fgam. That's e f g a m from other dot com. Uh, please send us emails. We'll be very happy to challenge you on any disputes that you might have with us. Uh, So with that, thank you very much for listening and we'll speak to you again next week.